Lord, speak to us tonight through your word. We're just here before you tonight, Lord, that you would teach us of yourself and show us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were looking at this passage, uh, understanding from that one side of the coin, God's sovereignty. And uh, it is like two sides of the coin. You know, you look at one side of the coin and you see the head and you look at the other side of the coin and you see the eagle or you see, uh, you know, the picture of the Lincoln Memorial or whatever you see. And, and you're saying, hey, th there's a head on this coin. And the other guy's saying, no, 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 there's an eagle on the coin. And you can argue back and forth and it's like they're both there. But if you try to see one side and see the other side and try to see them at the same time, you can't do it. And you try to hold it like that, you'll go cross-sided. And it's the same thing with election <laughs> and free will. Uh, you go cross-sided when you try to put them together. And uh, I've read so many books on people who have found the solution to put them together. And uh, there is no solution to put them together. You just can't. There are two pillars one great pillar of election and the predestination and the foreknowledge of God, the sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, who knows all history before it ever begins, who can speak the future as if it were already in the past. That's the sovereign God. On the other side, we are creatures of complete free will. Our choices make all the difference in our destiny. Um, our prayers make all the difference in the world. If we don't pray, we don't get answers to prayer. And, and, uh, and you say, now, how do you put those together? You just can't. They're just two separate poles. They're going up. And right as they go into the clouds, they crook just a little bit towards each other. And then they dive into the clouds. And you know from physics, they have to meet. And they meet at the throne room of God. And someday when we see him, we'll know all things, even as we're known. Until then, um, you've got your Calvinistic type of people, and you've got your Arminius type of people, and Dennis Calvary type of people who are in the middle, and uh, we make everybody mad. We're Calvinians. We're not, uh, we're not Calvinist enough for the Calvinists, and they say, oh, you're just an Arminian in a, in a Calvinist suit. And the Arminius say, no, you're not Arminius enough for us. You're too Calvinistic, and you're just a, you know, Calvinist in Arminius suit. And and the bottom line is, when we're at certain passages, we teach it one way, and we other passages teach the other way. And you say, oh, hold it, it sounds almost like you're contradicting yourself. How do you put those two together? Well, we don't try. We just take the passages as they are, and enjoy each of those pillars, enjoy each of those uh, particular uh, fields that we're in at that time. And we enjoy them both. Um, great sermon by Spurgeon on Joshua chapter 1 when the Lord said to Joshua, don't turn to the right and don't turn to the left. And he says, oh, how we love to live in the mountains of election. But we have to also go down in the valleys of the free choice. And in uh, there he was saying that you got to stay on that middle road and enjoy the scenery of both of them. You know, enjoy the valley and all the produce it brings and enjoy the mountains and, and just the beauty of it and the magnificent and the awesomeness of it. Enjoy it. But don't try to be a mountain man. Don't try to just go live up there and don't try to just go down in the valley and stay there either. You need both of them and uh, you just can't be in both of them at the same time. You can't be in the mountains and in the valley at the same time. And so... God has given us the understanding of his election to comfort our hearts. For us to know that God already knows the end from the beginning. And so we're stumbling and we're slipping and we're falling and we're sinning. And we're saying what we shouldn't be saying. And we're doing what we shouldn't be doing. And, and we can start thinking, man, God's going to throw me away. And then you remember, no, God knows the end from the beginning. And there we go back to Romans chapter 8 where he says, Whomever he foreknew, he also glorified. He foreknew us before the foundations of the world, and that's our status in heaven glorified, and our glorified state in heaven. So God saw us before time began, and God at the same exact time, like looking at a yardstick, he also saw us in heaven, seated together with him in heavenly places. And so now we're in the middle. 
And we're going, I know that he saw me before the foundations of the world, and I know he sees me in glory, and therefore, I'm comforted. Because I know that although I'm slipping and falling and stumbling, that one day, you know, sorrows for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and one day I'm going to awaken in his likeness. Now, if you look over the last year, you say, man, I haven't grown at all. But if you look over the last five years, you can see some growth. You know, it's like the, the nine-year-old kid going in and looking in the mirror and, and coming back a week later and looking in the mirror going, man, I haven't changed at all. But if you take a snapshot and show it to him when he's nine and show it again when he's 15, there's been definite change, definite growth. And so in the same way in our spiritual walk, we can't, we're not the best grades of it, but take a snapshot before Christ, after Christ, five years into Christ, 10 years into Christ. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to see how we've grown in the Lord. And, and of course, God in a moment and a twinkling of an eye is going to change us into his very image in a second and a brand new body that wants to serve the Lord, and a heaven where there's no more devil and no more sorrow, no more pain, no more temptation, and there we will walk pure before God. But until then, nobody bats a thousand, and the righteous man falls seven times and gets up seven times, though sin abounds, grace abounds more, and we're greatly comforted. Now, on the other hand, as we're going to see in Romans chapter 10, it's very practical. He says there, how will they ever believe unless somebody tells them the gospel? They can't believe unless they hear it. Well, how are they ever going to speak it unless they go out to speak it? Well, how can they ever go out to speak it unless they're sent to go out to speak it? Well, how lovely on the mountains are those who spread the good news. So then he comes back to say those who believe. So those who call upon the Lord, they're saved. Those who believe are saved. And so... The one guy standing on top of the mountain with his arms folded is saying, well, God's the one who has to choose you. And uh, he, God's the one who's done it all. It's not to him who wills or not to him who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. God will have compassion on whom he will and whom he will he'll harden. So therefore it's God that saves by his own divine election and by his own divine power. And I say, you're absolutely right. And the guy's down in the valley going, but hey, if I didn't choose God, I'm not going to heaven. If I didn't see my sinful condition and call out to God to save me from my sinful condition, and if I didn't bow my knee before Christ and ask Him to come into my life, I wouldn't be saved. You're absolutely right, too. <laughs> well, then my choice is absolutely mandatory before I'm saved. That's right. They're just two sides of the coin. On the one side of the coin, we see that God has to do it all. On the other side of the coin, we see that we still have to make the choice and have to respond. And then, of course, as we're going to go on to see, the, the choices we make definitely make a difference on our future. And does God know that? Yes. God knows the end from the beginning. But that doesn't change how we live. And this is where people get mixed up. They say, well... Since already God already knows the future, he knows I'm getting ready to go out and get drunk right now. You're planning on going to get drunk? Well, God already knows all my sins before I send them, and he's already paid for them in advance, and, and uh, why not? He already knew about it if I do. You see, to that person, you come back and you say, whom God hardens, he hardens. God hardens whom he wills, as well as has compassion. And so such a person who can have such an attitude is clearly not born again. The natural man cannot understand these things of the Spirit. The natural man always warps the sovereignty of God. The natural man who's not born again, whose God's Spirit is not in him, always takes the election, the predestination, the whole concept of God choosing, and he warps it, and he says... Let's go out and sin that grace may abound. That's not what God said. That's not what God said. God said, where your sin is, grace will abound. He didn't say, go out and sin that grace might have been abound. A big difference. One is where you're making the choice to take an advantage of the goodness of God. You're trying to warp the concept of grace. That's like, I'm a doctor and I say to you, hey, you know what? You've got free medical. 
I'm going to take care of you. Whatever it takes, I'll take care of your medical. And you go, hey, let's go break a leg so we can get it fixed. It's stupid. God says, I've saved you. I've called you to be my holy children unto me. To be holy as I am holy. You're going to go to heaven and live in holiness forever. And you say, hey, let's go out and sin to see about this forgiveness stuff. See exactly how it works. Let's see if God can make me holy even though I'm living like the devil. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. And so the natural man understanding that, I could say, yeah. You, you understand it to the best your natural mind can understand it. But to us who are truly born again, we're humbled by the fact that God knew us from the beginning of time. We're broken. More than once, I've been brought to tears over this very fact as I'm just sort of sitting before the Lord in awe and fear and terror and wonder, just saying, God chose me. God doesn't need me. God wants me. God doesn't have to take me to heaven. God wants me to go to heaven with him. God isn't obligated to give me a place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God with joy. There in the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. He brings me to the banqueting table. With joy, he takes us there. God wants me. God desires me. God longs for me. And this is what we see in predestination. It wasn't us stumbling across the understanding that we're sinners and that we need to come to God. We understand, and may it be from your point of view, what happened. Oh, a friend of mine happened to ask me to go to church, and I had already planned to go to a concert, and then the concert got rained out, and so I went to church, and man, what if that concert never rained out? I got saved that night. You know, it's like, God knew that before the foundations of the world. He had already called you. Now, in your estimation, you just sort of stumbled upon it. Boy, I'm glad I made that choice instead of that choice because I end up hanging out with these guys who end up getting saved and I also got saved. But in reality, God had preordained it before the foundations of the world. And just to be in awe in that. And that's as far as it goes. You can't utilize it any more than that. You can't at that point start saying, oh, since God predestined, therefore, I can make this kind of choice. No. Predestination is not to help you make daily choices. Well, since God already knows I'm going to sin, I'll go on and sin. Since he already knew it, and then he's, so he's already forgiven it. No, your, your concept of predestination is how can I utilize it to my advantage. It's not to be utilized in any way, shape, or form. It's just a beautiful mountain peak that you'll never make it to, but you just look at the splendor of it and enjoy. And it comforts you. God knows the end from the beginning he knows that's far as it goes we don't say well you know let's just go blow a bunch of money and spend it on a credit card and 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 say well god already knew we'd be in this financial need no god knows the end from the beginning god knows your foolish times but you're paying for the consequence you went out and spent your money foolishly, you blew it, now you're suffering the consequences of it. Well, God has this divine plan for it. Does he? Or is it just you're reaping what you sowed? Well, God's going to provide because, you know, he, he understands all. Yeah, and God's a merciful God. But you also see in scriptures where people made bad choices and God made them live with it. You see that also in scripture. So can God have mercy? Yes. He sure can. Is he going to have mercy in that situation? I don't know. But it's just like Satan who came and quoted the scripture to Jesus saying, Hey, this scripture's about you, Jesus. It says that angels are char taking charge concerning you, watching over you, that your foot won't even hit a stone that unless the angel's there to grab your foot out of the way to protect it. So, come on. Let's go throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple to see exactly how this verse works. And he says, Don't tempt the Lord your God. You're misusing that beautiful promise of God. And how many people misuse the whole concept of predestination? It is not for you to use. It is for you to look at in awe and in splendor, period. And when we're struggling, we say, 
God, you know the end from the beginning. I hate this. I hate this sin. I hate what I'm doing right now. I don't want to do it. I want to live holy and righteous before you. That is the true believer's heart. And to make every wise choice as if we had everything to do with the equation. See, that's the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian lives life as if it depends upon him, but he trusts in God knowing that it all depends upon him. And so I know it's 100% God. But God doesn't want me to kick back and say, okay, God, do it all. That's, that's not Christ. Christ says, be diligent. Add to your faith a diligence. And so there's both sides of the coin, and you enjoy them both and, and understand them both and uh, put them together. It's just a very difficult thing to do. And uh, many wasted books, many thousands of years of fighting and debating over this issue has gone on, and it's not going to... I'm not going to waste time on it. Um, as one man was told by a wise pastor as he was going to seminary, he said, uh, now you're going to get to seminary and everybody's going to try to figure out election, figure out predestination. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Every time a discussion about it comes up, just go lock yourself in your room and pray however long you think that discussion is going to last. And do that every single time. By the end of your, semi your seminary years, you'll be so close to the Lord, you won't care. <laughs> but again, a lot of wasted words and time. So now he makes it clear here, as we go on, that it's God does as God wills. And if you don't like it, you know, go start your own universe. And if you can't, then you must not be God. And he is God. Who who are you gonna who are you gonna report God to? Who are you gonna complain to God about? There is none greater. God does as God wills. And God can reach down into the dirt and he can make Moses. This guy who's as stubborn and as hard hearted as any other human being upon this earth. But he begins to put the word of God within Moses, begins to work with Moses, and, and spends 40 years breaking Moses out in the, the fields as a shepherd. And then he has in Moses the meekest man on all the earth, and he uses him. He can reach down into that same lump of dirt, and there he makes a Pharaoh, as stubborn as everybody else. One, he has compassion on. The other, he hardens. Pharaoh had denied the Lord, and so God confirmed his hardness of heart, and he, and he just utilized him however, which, however he chose. Now, you say in verse 20, Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Well, why should we still find fault? If God made Pharaoh to be hard, and he was hard, then he was in God's perfect will. Well, now it's God's perfect will for him to go to eternity to hell. Who's going to resist God? Who's going to resist God's will? Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So can God take a Moses and God take out of the same lump of dirt and make a Pharaoh? And does that mean that there's injustice with God, as he says back up there, unrighteousness with God. By the way, you might make a note in your Bible, in John chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus says plainly, for there is no unrighteousness with God. John chapter 7, 7 verse 18. There is no unrighteousness with God. Now, what if, in verse 22, God wanting to show his wrath, add to make, and to make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared... Now again, that is in the middle voice in the Greek. It's reflexive action, which means prepared himself for destruction. Referring back to Pharaoh again. What if the vessels of wrath prepared themselves for destruction? So you might ask the question. Moses comes down and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Boom. He dies right on the spot. Vaporizes. God could have done that. But he didn't. He worked with Pharaoh. He let Pharaoh say no. And then he gave him another plague. And Pharaoh said yes. And then he said no again. And then it went on for several months, maybe over a year. 
until finally Pharaoh said, go, get out of here, do whatever you want. And all the Egyptians' hearts were touched and gave all the children of Israel much gold and much silver and made them all wealthy people as they left Egypt. And then God destroyed Pharaoh as Pharaoh had destroyed, as he had destroyed the little children by putting them in the water. Now God destroys Pharaoh in the water. So God did it in his timing and his way. So what if God? He doesn't say God does this. But he says, what if God did that? He's not saying that that was what God was thinking. He didn't know on this particular point. But he's saying if God was thinking that, he has the right over the clay. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to say about it? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God evil? And I tell you, he is not. God is perfect in beauty Everything he says comes from love. Everything he does comes from love. The very main attribute of God is love. And with that is a perfect justice. There is no evil, no, no wickedness in God whatsoever. James chapter 1 says there's not even a shadow of turning within him. He cannot tempt with evil. He doesn't use evil. He has nothing to do with evil. God is pure and beautiful in every way. Now, the natural man, he sees evil in almost everything God does. He thinks, the natural man thinks it's evil that you would want to follow the Bible. You go to the natural man and say, hey, you know, Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord and everything. Oh, evil, oppressive. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and lay themselves down. Oh, evil. Children need to obey their parents. Oh, that's, that's horrible, oppressive. Everything in the Bible is evil and oppressive to the world. Everything about God is evil and oppressive to the world. And so how much more this concept of the sovereignty of God. Now we, who are on the right side of the fence, we love this. I love the fact that God predestined me before the foundation of the world. Now if you're not a follower of God here tonight, and you haven't given your life to the Lord, you hate this because you're going, well, it's not even fair. He didn't even predestinate me before the foundation of the world. So I hate God for it. Well, you say, how do you know he didn't predestinate you? Well, I'm not a saved, am I? Well, you could be. Why don't you ask the Lord to come into your life? Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that your sins are separating you from God? Well, yeah. But I haven't given my life to the Lord, so I'm not predestined. Well, you haven't stopped breathing yet. Ask the Lord to come into your life. Well, I don't know if I'm ready yet. Well, maybe you are then. Maybe you're not predestined before the foundation of the world. So, but again, it's coming back. The choice is in your court. God died for everybody. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world it says in 1 John chapter 2 and he's the advocate for all of those his propitiation of our sins is for the whole world so there's no man that's going to have an excuse before God because of creation and also because their sins were taken upon Christ on the cross now the Calvinists say oh no 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 Jesus didn't die for those he didn't predestinate the word world there actually means elect Go look in the Greek. It means world, folks. <laughs> That's exactly what it means. It's the same word all the way through the New Testament, world. It doesn't mean elect. But it blows their theory out. You see, it blows their theology out. They have to add to the Bible because it doesn't fit in their little package. So those on this side of free will, are many as they don't know what to do with election and predestination. They don't know what to do with it. They don't talk about it much. They just try to ignore it. And the Calvinists, they got the election stuff down, so they think, but they don't know what to do with the free will. And they begin to change it. They say, well, when you get born again, now you have free will, but not complete free will to choose God or reject God because all the old things have passed away, all things have become new. You can check, you can choose between reading Genesis or reading Galatians or eating a hamburger or french fries or, you know, going to church four times a week or two times a week, but you can't choose evil. And I, folks, it's just not true. As believers, you love the Lord. Satan can dupe you, and you can still choose evil. And that's why we've got to take this life seriously and making wise choices and serving the Lord, because we can grieve the Lord tremendously. Ananias and Sapphira. The Bible doesn't give us any kind of indicator that they weren't believers. 
far as we know, Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven today. But they lied to the apostle because they wanted to be known before the people as great givers and they, they said, oh, we gave everything when they didn't and they both died instantly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there the church, born again believers, but they were getting drunk during the feast, the, the potlucks they had. And they were um, disgracing the poor by the rich being gluttons and the poor not having anything to eat. And Paul says, this is why many of you are weak and sick and even dying, that you won't be judged with the world. Since you won't be judged with the world, God's going ahead and judging you right now. But if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't have to worry about God judging you right now because you're not going to be judged with the world, but God's having to put a stop. So they were being so evil that God was putting this spanking upon them of their physical body getting weak and sick and some even he just took them on home because they were so fruitless even as believers and that's in 1 Corinthians 11 clearly they were believers and he was just taking them on home because he wasn't going to judge them with the world and so again what if God endures with the vessels of wrath those who aren't knowing the Lord and works with them to make his glory known and again he's working with the believers but again we have the complete power of choice and in verse 23 that he might make known, I love this, the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. That's you, me. We're vessels of mercy. Isn't that a great term? I love that. I'm a vessel of mercy. And the riches of his glory, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So again, he endures with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath, and he endures with much long suffering the riches of the, those who are vessels of mercy. God is working with you. As a believer, he's working with you to shape you into his image. As a non-believer, he's utilizing you to persecute Christians so they have greater riches in heaven. <laughs> he utilizes you to torment believers so they can show themselves humble and broken as our Lord did. He's used non-believer for various reasons, uh, as he wills, if that's what God does. If God is wanting to do such a thing, he can do it, and he does do it as he pleases. And in verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the, and here the fireworks go off, Gentiles. Now, let me tell you, by Paul saying that, it's no big deal to say that tonight, but Paul almost got killed saying this if you read the book of Acts where he said and the Lord showed me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles oh they threw up the dirt and they rushed on Paul and just began to beat him to a pulp and the Romans carried him away and barely got him away with his life more than once when Paul said that and so again um, the Jews only and this is where Paul was getting as you remember the first part of chapter 9 he says hey I would give my life for Jews that could be saved it's, it's grievous that the Jews aren't followers of the Messiah that God has given them. And now he's coming around to where he wanted to get the whole time, and that is he's calling those, not just Jews, but Gentiles. Now remember, in this chapter, he said, it's not being a, a child of Abraham that makes you a Jew. Abraham had many sons. You can go back. He later married Keturah, and they had six sons. And then uh, there's a list of six sons and 12 grandsons and three great-grandsons uh, back there in Genesis, I think it's 27. And uh, so he had lots of kids, but they weren't all of promise as Isaac was as of, of promise. And you say, well, that makes sense because, you know, Ishmael, he was a pagan, a Keturah, she wasn't a, a Jewess. And, and, well, then you go back to Isaac, and he had Esau and Jacob, born at the same time twins. But yet Esau was rejected, and the, the whole uh, country of Edom started, and God eventually wiped them all out. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he wiped them out. And so, again, it's not of the race of the Jews, but it's those who are of faith of Abraham. Abraham, remember, in Genesis 15, he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul, back in Romans chapter 4, said, though it's not of our works, God would have to get it to us as, a, as our, something we earned. But it's not to him who wills, or, him, or it's not to, to the person that works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. 
apart from his works. That is the faith that God wants to see. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Now in verse 25, he's quoting Hosea, or Jose, depending on what part of the world you live in. And as he says also in Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And then in Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. So what shall we say then? This is question number three. That Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. So now he quotes clearly that those who are God's people would not be necessarily the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and that God kept a remnant for himself, and a part of that remnant were, again, people of the Gentiles. And he quotes it out of Hosea and out of Isaiah. Now remember there in the book of Hosea, Hosea is told to marry a prostitute by the name of Gomer. Howdy, Sarge. Uh, it depends on who you are. A lot of you guys are too, uh, too young to remember that. But anyway, uh, I don't know which is worse, the fact she's a prostitute or the fact that she was, her name was Gomer. I'm not sure which was the worst. But anyway, um, he married this gal, and it was a prophecy. Is God saying, that's who I married? I married a country, Israel, and you were a prostitute. And if you go idol worshipers all the way back to Abraham, and when they left Egypt, they had their idols. You remember back with, with uh, Jacob, when he left Laban, remember his wife, Rachel? She took her father's idols. And then when Laban came looking for him, uh, she was sitting on them, and, they, and the servant said, get up. And she goes, oh, you know, I'm on my period. Leave me alone. Oh, okay, you know. They backed off, and, and she just left her alone, and, and she stole those idols, and they kept around. They became family heirlooms, and they didn't ever get rid of their idols. And so he says, that's you guys. You're idol worshipers. Now, they had a son, and they named him, you are my children. You are my child. And then Gomer went back out prostituting. And she came back and she was pregnant. And then her name was uh, named, You're not my child. Or you are not my children. And then she went out prostituting again. And this time she ended up in slavery. And Hosea says, what do I do? You know, let her be sold into slavery or have her stoned to death for being an immoral woman? And God said, no, take all that you have and sell it and, and buy her back and speak sweetly to her and do all that you can to woo her back unto yourself. And then he prophesied and said, oh, Israel, this is you. You don't want to stay with me. You don't want to be with me. And how many times you went a-whoring You've been impregnated by another religion, by another God. You won't stay following me. But he said, here I am again, gently reaching out to you, willing to buy you out of slavery once again. And so again, God will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. God will harden on whom God will harden. And here he is saying now, of the Jews, there's some who will have compassion. And since Jesus Christ died on the cross, I guarantee you every single year since that time, 1998, 1,998 years since there, there's always been a believing Jew. I guarantee it. 
there's never been on the planet earth all Jews not believing in their Messiah. There's always been a remnant of Jews. In the same way, there's always been a remnant of Gentiles. There's not a year that's gone by that there hasn't been Gentiles believing in the Lord. And see, God sees, as he looks down upon earth, he sees who are sealed, who are his, who have the Holy Spirit in them. And so he no longer sees Jews and Gentiles. He sees his family. He sees his body. And one day when Christ comes to take us to heaven, he's not going to go and look through the membership roles of Calvary Chapel or the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church or any other church. He's going to look down and see who has the Holy Spirit in them and who are believers. And those he'll take together who become the bride of Christ and he'll take with them. And so again, it's not um, of the Jews or of the Gentiles. And again, he's going to continue to elaborate on this because the Jews, this is just a very tough concept. Remember, even after Peter was instructed by the Lord supernaturally, there in Acts chapter 10, there is the, he's hungry and he's up on the rooftop there at Troas and, and the sheet comes out of heaven with all these, according to the Old Testament law, all these unclean animals, and God says, hey, Peter, you're hungry, take and eat. And even though he was starving, he just like, no way, I'll starve to death before I touch anything unclean. And God said, I said, take and eat. And he rejected it, threw the sheet to the side, and then another sheet came down, and the third sheet, and number three was a real sore number with Peter. <laughs> and there he came out of the trance. And there was a knock at the door. And Gentiles were saying, God spoke to our master Cornelius, who the angel said to come and get you and to take you back to Caesarea with us. And he goes, well, the Lord just spoke to me. Whatever he calls clean is clean. So let's go. And of course, the Jewish family stayed with, no doubt, was in horror. As, you know, here's this devout Orthodox Jew riding off with these Gentiles. And then as he gets there, he has to go through this Gentile house. Oh, he'd never done this before. And he steps inside just cringing, you know, of all that Gentile filth. And and he, he just says to him, man, this is, I am totally uncomfortable with this. Um, you know, I, well, let me tell you, there's this guy who was a carpenter. His name was Jesus. And he's just very historical about the message. And there is, he says that he was the Christ. The Holy Spirit just fell upon those Gentiles, and they began to speak in tongues. And, and Peter's just like going, whoa, I guess the Gentiles can be saved. Because in the Jewish system, Gentiles could be proselyted, but they had to stay on the outside, you see. They had, they had a court of the Gentiles, and they could stay on the outside, and the best they could ever see was a wall. They could never go inside the temples. They could never have sacrifices. They could never experience what a Jew experienced. But Peter said the same experience we had, they had. Identical. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the powering, the Holy Spirit living in you, I guess it's they're equals to us. And then he leaves. But Peter still couldn't sort it out in his mind because when he went back to Antioch, the Gentiles would tempt him with their pork chops and, and he would finally give in and he would be eating away. But as soon as the Jews came up from James, that's it. He just wouldn't eat with any more Gentiles because he wasn't sure. He was still confused and he didn't want to debate over it because he didn't think he could give a very good argument. He didn't think he'd win. So finally, Paul had talked about this more than once. And finally, right in front of everybody, he said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. These Jews don't know it, but as soon as, you, as soon as they leave, you start eating pork chops. And I just wanted to be clear here that Peter is not kosher like you guys think he is. And he said, I rebuked him to his face. Well, it got so heated that there in Acts chapter 15, James, they had to go before James who had taken over as the head of the church there in Jerusalem and they all went before and Paul and and they argued over this and James in his conclusion in Acts chapter 15 verse 17 it's right before the book of Romans a few pages to the left Acts chapter 15 
verse 11, like I said. And uh, he says there, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them and among the Gentiles. And so they made it clear at this point they would not try to get them to keep the Old Testament law, that they were saved by grace. The purifying of their heart, verse 9, happened by faith. And uh, again, that no other yoke God would put upon them other than to believe in him by faith. They did come up with a little list of things, however, and then later on, Paul and his letters say, "Forget it. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even respect this list." Um, in Romans chapter 14, he's going to say, "Hey, whatever. Whatever your conscience is, do it. If eating meat is against your conscience, or however the meat's fixed, it's against your conscience. Then don't eat it that way. And if there's somebody else that you're going to stumble, don't stumble them. But uh, the bottom line is, is it doesn't matter whether it's strangled or not, or however you eat it." And so, but here he, he agreed by concession with this letter and took this letter out. But like I say, in his letters in Galatians, as well as in Romans, he even discounts that, that letter as being uh, a standard that it's solely by faith. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then also in chapter 10, uh, he says plainly, there's no law. There is no law for us who are believers at all. Zero law. We have to respond to God out of love. That's all that God will receive. And uh, if you're doing it for any other reason, to try to approve yourself to God or try to help your salvation out or try to uh, get yourself more right with God through any kind of works of any kind of law, God will not receive it. And so, again, that's sort of a humbling statement in verse 29 that if God didn't save the remnant, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, let me tell you something. There's no innate righteousness of our own. And if God were to leave you alone for a day, you would be as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. Amen? There's no righteousness. Our righteousness is all of Jesus Christ. There's no good thing that dwells in us. There's no strength. There's no power. And in verse 30, once again, what can we say to this? That God sought the Gentile. The Gentile was out there in his little Gentile world, sinning away, and had no problem with it. Was living in his pagan life, sacrificing his own children to these various gods. Their, the worship, the main worship at that time was Diana of Ephesus. And the way you were right with that god was all the women would give themselves as prostitutes and all the men would go pay the money to buy the prostitutes. And that's how they, the whole religion, on both sides, their conscience was being wounded, but they had hardened their conscience. And, and so these Gentiles are out there being as Gentile and as pagan as you can imagine. And God came to them. And God pointed out to them by his Holy Spirit that they were in sin. And God sent somebody to preach the gospel to them. And God woke them up to their spiritual need. And God brought them unto himself. And so these Jews in all their pride are saying, Man, I was, you know, circumcised the eighth day. And I'm of the tribe of so-and-so. And I've always lived righteous. I've never, you know, ate off a Gentile dish. I've never been in a Gentile house. And I've always, you know, lived according to the law. And I'm kosher and all of this. It's really funny. You can get kosher hot dogs and even kosher pickles. How can you have a kosher pickle? It's, they're basically saying that no Gentile's hand has ever touched that jar, at least the inside of it, before it was sealed. It's sort of crazy, but they'd have all this pride. And he's saying all of this religious purity not spiritual purity, but religious purity, where did it lead them? It, lead, it led them to say, I'm righteous by what I do. I'm right with God because of what I do. And he's saying that's exactly the opposite of Christianity, which is we're righteous because of what Christ did. And they stumbled at the stumbling stone, which is what? Humility that we're a sinner. Remember Jesus had that parable where the tax collector, the sinner, goes in and prays? And the Pharisee goes in and prays. And the tax collector is just beating his chest, not even wanting to look up, just says, God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. The Pharisee goes in, Lord, thank you. That I'm so righteous. And, you know, he describes how all the good works that he's doing according to the law. And Jesus said, which one of them left righteous before God? 
it's interesting because he says the Pharisee prayed to himself recounting to himself you know all the great works he's done and he said which one left righteous he said I tell you it was the tax collector the sinner why because he just came and fell at the mercies of God saying I'm just a sinner Lord have mercy upon me and he believed that's why he prayed that God would have mercy upon him and in verse 33, and as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So the stumbling stone is self-righteousness, self-determination, self-works, man doing it by his own efforts. And of course, the righteousness of faith is those who just believe upon him. He gave them the right to become children of God. How? Just by receiving him. Believing in him, he gave them a right. He received him, gave them a right to become children of God. Now, after we come to God, then we will, then we run. We can't will, we can't run to salvation, but after salvation, then we can will, then we can run. So it's not to him who wills, it's not to him who runs that we are saved, but after we're saved, then it is to us to will and it is to us to run in the love of Christ, in the response. And that's what we're going to see as we get on in chapter 10. We're going to see some willing, and we're going to see some running, not for salvation, but as a result of salvation. A true born-again believer has in his heart to live for God in all diligence, in all holiness, in all purity, and not sloppy agape, and not a flimsy grace. But grace produces in us a diligence to want to serve God and live for him in a holy way. So maybe tonight you receive the Lord, but you're struggling. You know Christ is in your life, but your lust is getting away with you. Your covetousness is too great. You're struggling with anger at that guy at work or your spouse or your kids. Or You know, it's good to know God has you in his hand. In John 10, all who come unto him, he has them in his hand, and of them he loses none. When I'm going to cross the road with one of my kids, I don't let them hold my hand. I reach over and grab their wrist. Because they can slip. They may dart off, you know. Whoa, there's a, looks like a quarter on the sidewalk. Ah, and out in front of the car they run, you know. But I grab a hold of them. In the same way, salvation, God has grabbed a hold of us. We're saved by his work, by his efforts, and he has us with a firm hand. And so be comforted. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. Where your sin abounds, his grace abounds more. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And in this we rejoice that he knew us. As David said in Psalms 139, before I was even born, yet in the volumes of the books, it was written of me. God already knows every word I'm going to speak it before I say it. He knows all my needs before I even ask of him. On the other side here tonight... You may want to believe yourself to be a believer, but yet you live in continual sin. Maybe tonight you're living in fornication. You're living with a person you're not married to. Or maybe you are here tonight and you are uh, a liar or a thief. Or you're just a person who just continually lives a life of some sin. You're not stumbling and struggling with sin. You just do it. It's no stumble or struggle whatsoever. But yet you believe yourself to be right with God. I say to you, you're a Pharaoh. And your heart is hard. And the only reason you're at church is because you're probably a transplant by the devil. Here to distract the brethren. Here to hinder the brethren from growing in the Lord. And you're a hypocrite. And you're trying to make some new believer say, forget that church. All those people are hypocrites down there because of you. And I say to you, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You're insulting the spirit of grace by coming to church and hearing such messages and living such a sinful life. You're trampling underfoot the cross of Christ. You're spitting upon the God of grace who bled and died. And your damnation will be a million times more severe than Hitler himself because you are living a lie. And God is going to judge you more than any. And if I were you, I would fear the Lord and fall on your face and say, God, if there's any hope for me, have mercy on me, O oh God. 
I repent of my sin and I stop it right now. Not another second. I wouldn't mess around another day. But come to Christ. He will have mercy. He will have grace. But don't use grace as a license for your own sin. Well, yeah, I know I'm not doing right, but, you know, God's forgiven me. And, you know, the way I was raised and, you know, he understands us because, you know, no, it's sin. And you're going to be judged for it for damnation for all eternity. No, you're not born again. And that's why you're not sinning because of circumstances. You're sinning because you're a sinner and your sin is going to damn you to hell if you don't turn from it, if possible. If possible. I, I know it, it's God who first has to choose you. So if you're not pricked in the heart, you don't have a repentant spirit, you're not weeping with a godly sorrow over your sinful way, I would say God has not had mercy or compassion upon you. And I fear for you. I, I don't know what to say to you other than, I'm sorry, but you're going to be damned to hell unless you turn right away. Let's pray. Lord, I come tonight, and I know every time I read this Romans chapter 9, I just personally just tremble before such an awesome God. When I look at the awesomeness of a giant mountain scene or the billowy clouds or hear the thunder of the waves crash or experience the intensity of the sun or look at the vastness of the stars and realize, God, you made them all. Truly, I feel like a little tiny puny piece of dirt. What is man that thou art mindful of man? The same way, Lord, I know it's you, God, who does all of these things. And Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that all of us would sense the awe of our salvation. We would sense the awe of being predestined before the foundation of the world, that we are Jacob, that you love us. And Lord, if there's any Esau's here tonight, if there's any Pharaoh's, or maybe in the making, that you may end up confirming their hardness of heart and leading them working in them these vessels of wrath for the day of destruction. Lord, I pray that if there's any repentance, you'd give them a godly sorrow and they fall upon their face and say, you are Lord, and weep and howl and cry. And let their joy be turned to mourning, purify their hearts, their double-mindedness, and that you would have mercy upon them and save them. That's you here tonight. You are living in sin. It's not that you're struggling in sin. You are clearly living a life of sin. Right now, just cry out to God. God, have mercy upon me. In your heart right now, God looks upon your heart. Say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm not just sinning, but I'm living in it, and I enjoy it. I don't feel convicted about it. Ask God to help you to hate sin as he hates sin. Forgive me, Lord. Wound me. Wound my heart, God. Pierce me deeply with your arrows. Pierce me through that I feel the pain that I'm causing you. Shoot me through with your arrows, Lord, that I can bleed. Give me a heart, Lord. Break my heart tonight. Break my stubbornness. Break my carnal thinking, my natural mindedness, Lord, and let me fall on that rock and be broken. Unless that rock fall upon me and I'm crushed to powder. Forgive my sin. Be the Lord of my life. I come to you tonight, Lord. Take my life and help me now to turn from you. Turn from my wicked ways and turn to you. In Jesus' precious name. Bless all those who have heard your word tonight. 